I do want to say welcome to any of you that are here this morning joining us in our building for the first time or those of you joining us online because we are always so glad to have you here to worship with us here at Hosanna Christian Fellowship. So for those of you who don't know, I am Pastor Nathan, and this morning we are going to be finishing chapter one of the book of Revelation, looking fully at what is the only physical description of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. And in that, we're going to be learning how we, as believers, as his children, should respond to the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. I think we would all agree that every single one of us needs to spend time in the presence of God regularly. And, you know, for those of us that do, that is great. But regardless of how much we do, I would say we always need to spend more time in the presence of Jesus Christ. And, of course, we know we do that through worship. And we do that through prayer. We do that through our service, serving one another, serving within the church, serving uh, the body of Christ. But most importantly, we do that through his word. Because it's in the word of God, we get an accurate, complete, full picture of who Jesus is. And that then goes and in, 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 in speaks to everything we do and how we live. And it's important to have a full and accurate picture of Jesus because sometimes I think we can uh, find ourselves developing a one-sided picture of Jesus, right? You know, we see Jesus as loving, patient, merciful, full of grace, and those things are all 100% true. And we love these aspects, especially when it comes to the light of our own sin <laughs> and our own disobedience, right? Oh, wow, we love the patience. Be patient with me, Lord. Be graceful, the mercy, the grace. I mean, in those times, we love to see him as our savior, to see him as our help, and he is all of those things, absolutely. But sometimes, we don't want to see that he is also king, that he is Lord, that he is the authority, ruler, and the judge of all things. You know, it's easy to justify living contrary to God's will when our picture is only of this gentle, meek, smiling Jesus. But it's harder to stay that way when we also see Jesus as John sees him here in Revelation chapter 1. You know, the presence of Jesus should elicit a response from us, and when we as his people neglect spending time in his presence, our response to his presence can be affected. Today, we're going to see a vision of Jesus exalted, Jesus glorified, Jesus in his divinity, his risen divinity, which is meant to be a picture that complements the picture of his humble humanity, which is showcased in the Gospels and his time here on earth. And we're also going to see how John reacts in his presence, a reaction that we can all emulate, a reaction that is born of a complete picture of who Jesus is. Yes, our God and Savior. Yes, the lover of our souls, but also the king, ruler, and judge of all things. And so John is going to do three things that we're going to look at in the scripture today, three things in the presence of the Lord. He hears, he sees, and he does. And what John does is he hears a voice, and he listens. He listens with intention. He sees a vision and understands the implication of that vision, and then he falls in worship and obeys God's call to action. And so this morning, we're going to look at that vision and be encouraged. Some of us even possibly challenged about our personal response when we're in the presence of Jesus Christ, God Almighty, the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. 
You know, Jesus has spoken, and he is still speaking to us, his church today. And we always need to practice being better listeners, to be good listeners, to hear what it is he has to say. And how we respond when he speaks is always greatly influenced by our vision of him. Is he king, lord, high priest, ruler, judge of all? Or is he the great suggester? the buddy that you just kind of listen to his advice and heed it if it's convenient for you. You know, proper reverence, respect, and obedience, and all the blessings that come from that are born from a healthy understanding and a complete picture of who Jesus is. But we can never forget that when we look at the picture of him and his awesome power and authority, everything he says and does is still and always born of a great compassion and love for his people. So that's what we'll be looking at this morning, but first we want to worship him because he is worthy. I've been worshiping him, um, quite honestly, in, in new ways over the last couple of weeks, you know, and sometimes it's the pain of difficulty that causes us to just sit down and just focus on his presence, and his presence is a blessing. So let's pray. Father, we love you so much. God, we thank you, Lord, for your presence in our lives. Lord, today we just want to start by worshiping your holy name because you are God, You are God Almighty, creator of the universe, the one who is worthy of our praise, Lord, and we want you to know that we praise you. We glorify your name. God, we thank you, Lord, for everything you've done in our lives, everything you're doing in our lives, and everything you will be doing in our lives, even the difficult and painful times, Lord, because, Lord, it's in all of it that you are speaking to us, teaching us, revealing your heart to us, Lord. And God, today, may we be encouraged by sharing in the vision that John had of you to be people who hear your voice, who see what it is you're trying to show us, Lord, and then become people who obey, who do, who act accordingly. Because God, our lives are yours, we are your people, and we are so thankful that you love us so very much. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, Let's jump into Revelation. We're going to be picking up in verse 9 this morning, going through verse 20 as we finish this chapter, but it starts out here in verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So as John is now getting into his vision and and what he saw, he opens up here by using two important words there. He says, I, John, your brother and partner. If you remember, the church of Jesus Christ at that time was under heavy, heavy persecution uh, everywhere. The governments were against them, people were against them, and the persecution was great both outside and then within as Gnostics and false teachers were trying to infiltrate the church. And so this persecution that was going on, John is trying to tell his readers like, hey, I'm I'm with you, like I'm, I'm with you there. That word brother simply means sibling or family, right? He's like, we are the family of God um, and we celebrate together and we suffer together. And then when he says that word partner, that simply means someone participating in the same exact thing, right? And he says, what are we participating in together? The affliction, the kingdom, and the endurance that are in Jesus. And all three of those terms simply speak of patiently withstanding persecution for the sake of the kingdom of God. That word affliction there is literally persecution. The persecution that the church was under, 
the persecution that we go through today when we take stands for Jesus Christ. But it's interesting, he says the affliction is in Jesus. It's in Jesus. You know, being in Christ, being a Christian, leads to persecution. That's just a real truth. That's just a real truth because the world's kings, the world's lords, hate Jesus. They hate who he is, what he stands for, and therefore they hate his kids, us, who stand with him and for him. And then it says the kingdom is also in Jesus. That word kingdom is just, it's a word referring to God's rule, God's dominion. God's rule and God's dominion is in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is God, as we're going to see in this vision. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And as king, he grants us, his subjects, if you will, everything we need, which includes the endurance that he says there, which is also in Jesus, because Jesus is the one who gives us the power to withstand hardship in this world. But John's opening up here, spelling this out, because you know we all each have an individual relationship with Jesus Christ, but we're not meant to live our relationship with Jesus Christ in solitude. We, we have an individual relationship with Jesus, but we're called as the body of Christ to live a shared relationship with Jesus Christ. We're called to, to love one another, as I've mentioned many times. There's so many one another encouragements throughout scripture. And John was in this very place of hardship himself on the island of Patmos. And we spoke a little bit about that last time. But this island of Patmos was a barren dismal penal colony at the time. Today, very beautiful place you could visit. But then, it was a jail. And it was a place where people were exiled to be completely forgotten. To be completely just abandoned and left to die is what Patmos was. And John tells us that he was there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And we all know as believers, and if you don't know this, then uh, surprise, um, <laughs> Standing for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus has and always will make us enemies of the unbelieving world because they hate Jesus and they hate what he's about. They hate everything that Christianity stands for and we see it today in so many different avenues and so many different arenas. And it's why we need a complete picture of Jesus to keep living obediently in this life because sometimes standing for Jesus amidst the persecution can be difficult and it could cause us to want to quit, and it could cause us to want to give up or back off, or it could cause us to say, you know what, I'm just gonna live my Christianity in isolation and tell nobody about it because I'm just tired of the persecution. But when we see a complete picture of Jesus, it helps us to live in obedience today and persevere to endure through those things. Now what I think is interesting is, is the book of Revelation is written by John the Apostle who also wrote the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now 1st John was written about 15 to 20 years before John got this revelation. And this is what he said in 1st John chapter 3, verse 2. He says, dear friends, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And now we are 15, 20 years later, right? John is writing this revelation of Jesus Christ to the persecuted churches and he's saying, I'm right there with you guys. I also am going through suffering and persecution, but I saw him as he is and I wanna share that with you. Because I believe that revelation, 
um, emboldened John and empowered John in ways that, that, that we can't even imagine. We know that he didn't indeed die on the island of Patmos, that he actually got off the island, went back to Ephesus, and proceeded to live out the rest of his life there, becoming known as the apostle of love because he was just so full of love one another, people love one another. And I believe this vision of Jesus we're gonna be studying today is what emboldened him and empowered him to say, I don't care what the world thinks. I don't care what the world does to me. They've thrown me into a pot of boiling oil. They exiled me to an island. It doesn't matter what the world does to me. I am a child of God Almighty. And I will persevere. And I will win. And for John specifically, because I saw the end. And he shares it with us that we would be encouraged as well. So verse 10, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. Now that phrase in the spirit simply is a phrase referring to being under the control of the Holy Spirit or under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And it really is a state that we voluntarily place ourselves in through a desire to yield to the Lord. And so being in the spirit is just a place you're like, God, I'm I'm yours. Speak to me, use me. Um, and, And so he was in the spirit on the Lord's day there. Now, the Lord's Day, there's some disagreement over exactly what that's referring to. Some uh, say that the Lord's Day there is referring to Sunday, the day the church gathers, because after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, instead of the church meeting on the Sabbath, which was a part of the the, um, Jewish uh, religious observance, the church then began to gather on Sunday in celebration and observance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is why we meet on Sundays uh, today as well. So some think that John was at church on Patmos and, and got this revelation, which could be. Others think that um, it's referring to this uh, phrase called the day of the Lord, which is kind of what the whole revelation is about after chapter four specifically. You know, the day of the Lord is a phrase biblically that refers to a span of time when God personally, actively intervenes in the history of mankind to accomplish his will. It's a time where, the God, where God's judgment is poured out on both unbelieving Israel and un- the unbelieving world. We refer to it as the end times, the tribulation. It's this time period that I believe begins with the rapture of the church and then the judgment of God and then the second coming of Christ and so forth. And so with that belief, some people read this to say, I, John, was on Patmos and I was catapulted into the future and I saw judgments and battles as if I was there and I'm writing these things down for you. Um, the challenge is if you get into the, the Greek and all that stuff, either rendering is linguistically possible. <laughs> so it could be either one. Um, so Lord's Day could mean Sunday, it could mean the day of the Lord. Neither one affects the prophecy. Neither one affects the revelation as is written and recorded. And so that's all I'm gonna say about that, okay? Um, then he goes, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. Loud voice, blaring is what the word means. Remarkable in magnitude or in the modern uh, definitions, Pastor Nathan playing drums, okay? (laughs) Or so I've been told, all right? Um, John equates it to a trumpet, and we've all heard a trumpet, right? A very abrupt, piercing, startling noise if someone blows into a trumpet. And so this loud noise happened behind him, and you know, we end up seeing John's response to this loud noise later on, but it's just kind of interesting, and I can kind of understand how startled he was, because one of my mom's favorite things growing up 
uh, when I was growing up was scary movies. She loved scary movies, big fan of scary movies. And as a kid, she just loved to scare me and my friends as we were watching scary movies. She would do things like sneak into the dark room with a phone book and right at the moment where the bad guy jumps out, slam the phone book on the table and ah, and we'd freak out, right? She loved it. And uh, so I kind of grew up with a, 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 a love of being startled right that moment, you know, and um, I've, I've found very quickly over the years, not everybody loves that. So, uh, <laughs> um, but I, I, I could kind of understand John's reaction at that startling sound here because in verse 10 of Revelation, uh, it says, I was on the spirit in the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet, right? And then in verse 12, it tells us, he turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me and it's, we're gonna see that it was Jesus exalted. And then in verse 17, it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And Jesus then laid his right hand on him and said, do not be afraid. You know, if you look up fear, the word fear in the modern dictionary, this is the definition an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous or likely to cause pain. That's the modern definition of fear. But what's funny is if you look through the definitions, they'll have one at the bottom that says archaic, meaning the archaic definition. And this is what it says, regarding God with reverence and awe. That archaic definition is what I believe John experienced. Not worry that Jesus was gonna hurt him but a recognition of the power and authority before him. A reverence and an awe that caused him to be like, oh my gosh, just overwhelmed with the power and authority and glory. You know, if you think about it, it had been 60 or so years since John had seen and heard Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ, right? He walked with him with three years here on the earth here and now here he is in his 90s possibly remembered what the voice of Jesus heard, uh, sounded like when he was here on earth, but now it's, it's like loud, like a startling trumpet. Verse 15 will tell us it's the sound of cascading waters. Just loud and overpowering, and, and, and in his memory, he was used to the voice of Jesus of Nazareth, who was still bold, but, but, but a different side of Jesus altogether. But not here, it's not... Pst. Hey, John. Hey, buddy. It's bum, 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 loud, unmistakable. It's a voice of godly power and authority. And so what did Jesus have to say in this loud voice? What was it John heard? Verse 11. The voice said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so what he sees is what we have in the whole book of Revelation, and I'm so glad John wrote it down. I'm so glad he was obedient. And so it's everything that John will see, starting here with the glory of the exalted Christ, then to the encouraging praise, penetrating criticism and consolation of his people, his church in chapters two and three, and then chapters four on to the future judgments of those who reject him. But today, we see what John saw starting in verse 12, where we get the only physical description of Jesus Christ in all of the Bible. And I think it's interesting, because you go back to the disciples, right? They walked with Jesus for three years. You read through the, the Gospels, and, and it's like they never thought to write down, this is what he looked like. 
They reference things like we get through, through different scripture and stuff that he was nothing of note, but, but we don't get a description, right? Oh, he, this is how long his hair was. This is the color of his eyes. We don't get any of that, right? We don't get any of that. And I think the Holy Spirit just was like, no, ah, that's not important. Here, though, the physical description is important. Here, we get the only physical description in Scripture. And it's a vision of the ri- risen, living, exalted, glorified Jesus, God, ruler of all creation, judge of all creation. This is the vision we get. And we know it's Jesus for a couple reasons, okay? Um, The first one we find in verses 17 through 20, he introduces himself to John. And in verse 18 there, he says, I am the living one who was dead, but am now alive forever and ever. And so that was the connection, that there was Jesus. He was the one who was dead and who was alive again. The other reason we know it's Jesus is because in your Bible, the font is red, and we all know Jesus speaks in red, right? (laughs) Right, that. (laughs) He doesn't speak in red. But, but, you know, in your Bibles, it's red because we want to point out the words that we know are Jesus's, but, um, but, but that's not the real reason. Okay, we know it's him because of verse 18. But what's even more important is who he introduces himself to be. Look at verse 17 of Revelation chapter one. Right before he says, I was the one who was dead and is now alive, right before that he says, I am the first and the last. Now any Jewish reader reading this would go, wait a minute, God said the same thing about himself in Isaiah chapter 41 verse four. Because there in Isaiah chapter 41, there's a a prophecy being told and it's God speaking and it's a section where it's talking about God versus the nations of the earth and God says this, I am the Lord, the first and the last. I am he. So a Jewish reader would be like, wait a second, God said that about himself. But then back in verse eight of Revelation one, the speaker there says, I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the almighty. Incidentally, it's not in red, right? Now, any Greek-speaking Gentile, which is pretty much any (laughs) non-Jew at the time, um, would read this and go, Alpha and Omega. That's the first letter and the last letter of our alphabet. But the concept of everything from the Alpha to the Omega was the concept of totality, the concept of everything, the concept of, 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 of just, um, yeah, everything, right? But there in verse eight, that is not in red, it says, I am the Alpha the Omega, says the Lord God. That phrase in the Greek is kyrios theos. It's a phrase referring to God, singular. The God as known as the supernatural creator and sustainer of the universe. Not Jesus Christ, God the Son specifically, but God, the concept of God Almighty, right? Which he closes that whole section with, the one who was, who is, and is to come, the Almighty. Now I point that out because if you go to Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, there is one speaking there who again says, I am the Alpha and the Omega from verse eight. I am the first and the last from verse 17 of chapter one. I am the beginning and the end. And then three verses later in verse 16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. What's the conclusion? Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. Jesus is the first and the last. 
Jesus is the beginning and the end. Jesus is the Kyrios Theos, the one who was, who is, and is to come. Jesus is God Almighty. I find it incredibly insincere when someone says, the Bible never claims directly that Jesus is God. Because I'm like, what, what book are you reading? Like, what book are you reading, seriously? Like, if you're reading the Holy Bible, not some weird translation, New World Translation, or, you know, not like, well, I'm gonna supplement the Bible with these three other books. No, just reading the Bible. You can't miss it. It's all over the Bible. In fact, John's Gospel, which was written, incidentally, after he saw this revelation, after he wrote, saw and wrote this revelation, he wrote in his gospel, right? Think about it. It's on Patmos. He sees a revelation of the risen Christ, glorified. He sees the, the, the say these things to the churches, and then everything is to come into the future. And then he gets off Patmos and goes back to Ephesus and starts living, and is like, you know what? I need to write a gospel recollecting the time Jesus was here on earth. What does he start with in John 1.1? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 of John 1, he said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we observed his glory. Isn't that awesome? John's entire gospel, like all the gospels have, a, have an emphasis, right? John's entire gospel is about the fact that Jesus is God Almighty. John's entire gospel was written to tie together the humanity of Jesus with the divinity of Jesus to present Jesus here on earth in his humanity as the one who is divine, God Almighty, the Jesus that John spent three years here with on earth and the one he saw in this vision on the island of Patmos. And so John heard a voice, and then in verse 12, he turns to see this vision. It says, then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. Then I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Now this is a description, a symbolic description of what John has seen. You'll notice here he keeps saying it was like this and like this, right? I don't believe that there was literally a sword coming out of his mouth. But John is using symbolism to describe this vision that, that, that is almost too much for him to understand. And the first thing he sees in this vision here, it says, is seven golden lampstands. Now if you read through the book of Revelation, you might be thinking, what's the deal with seven? Seven's all over the place, right? Seven this, seven that, there's seven lampstands, seven stars, seven spirits before the throne of God, seven trumpets, seven seals, seven bowls, and so on and so on. Like, is that just God's favorite number? What's, what's the deal? Well, in ancient Hebrew culture, seven was a very symbolic number that represented completeness. 
you might say it was the number of completeness, right? The number six was the number of man, and you'll, you'll see the symbolism throughout scripture. But when I say the number of completeness, I don't believe seven is the number of perfection or holiness, as, as some would say, because that would create a problem if you believe the seven is the number of perfection and holiness, because later on in Revelation, it says Satan has seven heads, and Satan is neither perfect nor holy, but it is a picture of complete evil. And so completeness, totality is the idea here. And, and, and we see it all over the place, right? Seven days complete a week, right? Seven notes make up a musical scale. It's, it's, it's kind of all over the place, right? And so what we see in Revelation is a complete revelation of God, a complete uh, representation of the church, and a complete judgment revealed. That's what Revelation gives us. And so the lampstands here, what are these lampstands? Well, Jesus himself tells us what they are in verse 20. Verse 20, he says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so those seven churches are gonna be addressed directly in chapters two and three. And those are the, incidentally, the seven churches listed there in verse 11 of chapter one. But here's what's interesting. A lampstand doesn't produce light on its own. It's just a stand for a lamp. What produces light on a lampstand is typically the oil lamp that is hung on the lampstand. What a fitting description of the church, I think, right? You know, the, the church doesn't produce the light. We simply display it. The light doesn't come from us, it just shines through us, but we are the ones who do display that light to the world. And it's an incredibly important calling that the church has to shine the light into a dark and hopeless world. And so he says, I saw this voice that spoke to me. I turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. That word like there, it, it means similar. It means similar to. And so the idea here is that John turns and he sees this, this being before him. And although it is something he has never seen and completely different, there's something familiar. There's something familiar. Right, this is a very poor analogy of that, but like, you know, you have a friend, you know someone, and then, you know, you don't see them for years and years and years, and maybe they've changed completely, right? And you see them and you don't recognize them, but you're like, something's familiar. This is, this is the idea here, one like the Son of Man and later confirmed to indeed be Jesus. But you'll notice there in verse 13, it says that he is among the lampstands. Among the lampstands. Biblically, we know that Jesus is the source of the light. Right in John chapter eight, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the source of the light. We are the lampstands. But what's interesting is in Matthew 5, 14, Jesus was speaking to his disciples and he said, you, are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. And the idea there is that Jesus is, is like the sun, the source of the light, and the church is like the moon. We reflect that light to the world, right? And we're called to reflect that light diligently. We're called to be an effective reflection of that light. And so, I mean, you look at the world today, I, I believe people are looking for a way out of the darkness. People are looking for a way to get out of the darkness into the light, and the church has the answer. And the question is, when we look at this, it's like, are, are, are we 
Are you? Am I? Are we shining the light? Are we reflecting the light of Jesus to this world? Now, if we have sin as big as the earth between us, the light's blocked, isn't it? We need to get that stuff out of the way so the light fully hits us and shines back to the world we're called to minister to. And so verse 13, he goes on and he says, this figure was dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. And I believe this opening picture for us is a picture of Jesus as our high priest. You see, back in the histories of Israel, you had a high priest and you had a king, and they were two different people. Jesus is both. And incidentally, in the human realm, one couldn't hold both offices, but Jesus, being God Almighty, he holds both offices. And so we see him here as a high priest because that robe is referring to a loose flowing garment that fell all the way down to the feet. It's specifically referring to almost kind of like a formal type robe. And then the golden sash wrapped around his chest is a callback to exactly what the high priest in Israel wore. They had a band that went around their chest. But the high priest ones had golden threads. The one Jesus Almighty wears is complete gold, right? And so this whole outfit speaks of his priesthood. And one of the major functions of the priest in the temple at the time was to tend the golden lampstand. Now in the temple, it was one singular lampstand called the menorah, right? One post, and then it had the branches out from that. And one of the roles of the priest in the temple was to every single day, they had to refill the oil in the lamps. They had to clean the soot, trim the wicks, right? So that the lamp continued to burn 24 hours a day. And so their ministry was to closely inspect and care for the lamp so it burned all the time because that lamp was the only source of light in the holy place, which again is another callback to Jesus Christ to be in the light of the world. But the idea, the picture here is Jesus, our high priest, is in the midst of the churches, carefully inspecting, regularly refilling the oil that burns to cause the light to shine cleaning out the soot that sometimes gathers there. You know, in Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, it tells us this about our high priest. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. And then Hebrews seven twenty four it says, because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. So the picture here is Jesus as our high priest, the one who remains forever, is among us. He's among the churches helping us to always shine brightly before the Lord, to help us always shine the light to the world of the way to Jesus like that city on a hill. He's among us, tending us. Your high priest is here today among the church to minister to your need today as a member of the church. According to Hebrews 4, to grant mercy and grace to help you in your time of need, right? Because some of us are sooty. Is that a word? Did I just make that up? Hebrews 7, here interceding for you, praying for you that you would continue to shine brightly the light of Jesus Christ in your life. And I love those Hebrews passages because it tells us in his humanity, 
He experienced all the sin, sinful temptation that comes upon us. He experienced all the difficulties and all the challenges, and, and, and therefore he gets it. And so he sympathizes with our weaknesses, but in his divinity, he is able to do the impossible to help you through it and to save you completely, that his light would always shine through you. I love that. I'm called to obey and I'm called to take steps, but it's not ultimately up to me. God does a work through my heart and enables me and empowers me, and if I just stay close to him, if I just stay in his presence, he does a mighty work in our lives. Verse 14, the hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. You know, those phrases, white as wool and white as snow, you find these phrases uh, throughout the Bible used to reference glory, used to reference holiness, used to reference wisdom and purity, right? In Isaiah chapter one, verse 18, speaking of purity and sinlessness, it says, though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool, right? So it speaks of a purity and a sinlessness, a, a state of, of sinless perfection in that, in that sense. But it also speaks of holiness and eternalness. In Daniel chapter seven, verse nine, Daniel had a vision of God Almighty. He had a vision of the Ancient of Days, and it says this, as I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. And so this vision John is seeing here about Jesus Christ is, is connecting Jesus to the Ancient of Days in Daniel's prophecy. Again, we've already made that connection that Jesus is God Almighty. But when we see there that, that God Almighty, the Ancient of Days, took a seat on the throne, it speaks of his kingship, his, his rulership. When it says Ancient of Days, it speaks of his eternal nature, that he though, is the one who was, who is, and who is to come. And then when it speaks of his white head, the, the hair on his head like the whitest wool, it speaks of great wisdom. You see, one of the things that I think is lost in our culture today in many ways is the idea that the older you are, the greater wisdom you have. That's under attack, and I think it's a demonic attack to cause the young people to say, oh, you're just a boomer. You don't know anything. You're dumb. You're out of touch. And sure, granted, I'm starting to experience, like I'm a, I'm a tech guy, right? My background is computers and tech. And I'm starting to experience those moments where I'm like, how does this work? And the young people are like, oh, come on, passionate. And I'm like, oh, hey, you know? So I'm, I'm with you on that, right? Technology changes, there's things that I'm like, I don't know how that works. That's not how it's operated my whole life. But, but the devil has tried to turn, I don't know how to turn on a filter on a certain social media platform to, oh, you must have nothing of value with life experience in any way, shape, or form. The devil is, is pushing that really hard. And um, I think it's unfortunate. And for you young people in the room, I think, uh, it's a grave mistake to dismiss the experience and wisdom of those who have hair white as wool because they have lived uh, much life and have gone through many things and you would do well to learn from their experience. And so it speaks of the great wisdom that Jesus has. And so again, Jesus is the ancient of days. He's the eternal one. He's the Alpha Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, right? The one and only God, holy, pure, and wise. And so these first couple descriptions, we see Jesus as our high priest, our king, and now we get to the fiery eyes and the bronze feet, and I think this is giving us the picture of Jesus as righteous judge, righteous judge. Um, it's said there that his eyes were like a fiery flame. 
And it's interesting, you're like, why fiery flame? Isn't that redundant, right? Doesn't flame fire? Doesn't fiery indicate flame, you know? Um, but the idea here is that it was burning hot. Burning hot, white hot, right? A fiery flame is like looking at the hottest part of the fire and you see the flame going around it, but you see, you could see how hot it is. And so his eyes were like this and it shows us that, that uh, Jesus was indignant over something over something, you know. Fire in scripture is often connected to judgment. Anytime judgment is connected with God, it's righteous judgment, right? It's perfect judgment, it's just judgment, it's fair judgment. And so the penetrating eyes of Jesus, this white hot fiery flame in his eyes that we see is, is, is referring to the, the, the penetrating eyes that he sees, that Jesus sees the truth of everything. Jesus sees the truth of everything and judges perfectly. Jesus is the one who sees right into the heart of man. The heart of man, and he sees every motive, every intention, right? He's not buying our excuses because he sees the truth of the matter. 1 Corinthians 3.13 says, Each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test the quality of each one's work. But I believe the, the fiery gaze is also connected to the feet because in verse 15 it says his feet were like fine, fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace. And the idea there is when bronze is fired in a furnace, it also gets white hot. Like you fire it to the point where it's white hot heat. And so this idea is that fire, we know fire can both purify like the concept of the refiner's fire, how metal was put into the fire and it was heated up so the impurities come out, but, but fire can also destroy. And so the connection to the bronze, though, um, I believe is in the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, the judgment for sin took place on what was called the bronze altar, or the brazen altar, right? They would bring their sacrifice to this altar and it would be burnt up. It was called the altar of burnt offerings. And so that altar represented the way to approach God. The way to approach God starts with dealing with sin. Starts with recognizing sin. Starts with saying, I've sinned, God. I'm unholy before you. And I'm acknowledging that. I'm not making excuses anymore. But it says his feet were like fine bronze. What does that mean? Well, feet indicates movement, right? And so his feet being like white hot bronze, I believe is talking about the time. The time is coming when he will again approach mankind. You see, we've been under a time of grace and we're in a season of grace, if you will, where God has said, this is how you approach God. We come to him through Jesus Christ, right? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But the time is coming where God's gonna be like, okay, now I'm approaching you, but I'm coming in judgment, in judgment on sin. And so it's a very, very um, serious thing to look at because the time is coming where he's both gonna come in righteous judgment on the world and, and that's gonna be condemnation of the wicked as we're gonna see in the rest of Revelation. But it also refers to the fact that he starts, he begins with a righteous purifying discipline on his church and that's what chapters two and three are all about. First Peter 4, 7 says judgment begins with the house of God. But it's not a judgment to condemnation for his children it's a correction, it's a discipline. And so I think there's a lot Jesus sees in the world today, and quite frankly, I think there's a lot he might see in the church today that uh, he's just not happy with. And his feet being like white hot bronze says, look, the time is coming 
where he's going to approach and deal with it. And so now is the time to deal with it and say, God, forgive me, let me repent. Because when he comes to deal with it, it it's, it's going to be a tough time. So verse 15, and his voice was like the sound of cascading waters. Cascading waters, that's the idea of a roaring waterfall. Have you ever been under a, a huge roaring waterfall, right? The noise is so loud you can't even hear your own thoughts, right? You can't talk. Um, it could also be referring to great waves crashing against the rocks, which I think is an interesting thought considering John was on the island of Patmos, you know, and you know, big waves hitting. And, and, but it's the idea of power and authority and undeniable force, which is what he's referring to here. And, and you might go, well, why is John describing the voice of Jesus this way? Right, it starts with the loud trumpet, and now it's like cascading waters. I believe the idea here is because, look, Christ speaks from power and authority. Christ speaks from a place of divinity. He is God, and when he does, we, the church, should listen. We should listen. He is not the great suggester. He is God, King, Lord, and ruler. And so some of us are, are to be quite honest, living lives where we're playing games you know, with Jesus. Now I firmly believe if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and he has saved you and sealed you with the Holy Spirit of promise and you have that nature in you that says uh, generally, overall, God, yeah, I do want to obey you but you keep wrestling with disobedience and, and, and playing games and stuff, discipline's gonna come upon you. Discipline's gonna come, and, and he's long-suffering. But the end of Revelation tells us that that long-suffering is gonna come to an end at some point. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, wow, you need to get right today. Because he is coming. And so his eyes see all they know all his robes and sash signify his place as high priest of the church. His hair and clothing it speaks of him being eternal king and, and full of wisdom and glory and purity. His feet speak of coming discipline and judgment. His voice carries the power and authority of the Almighty. And then verse 16, it says, he had seven stars in his right hand and a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Now, biblically, the right hand always represents a place of honor, strength, and authority, right? Um, nothing against lefties, right? <laughs> you know, it doesn't, you know, say anything about that. But, but this right hand idea was always a place of authority, power, control, and all that stuff. And so in his right hand, it says he has seven stars. Now, again, verse 20, Jesus tells us what those seven stars are. It says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, now this is another one where there's some disagreement on what angels mean. Are they heavenly angels, which some believe it to be? Some think that referring here to angels here is like the elders and the pastors of the church, the leadership within the churches. Some think it's actually whoever carried these letters to the churches at the time. And the difficulty comes from that the Greek word there that is translated angels simply means messenger. It simply means messenger, it can mean ambassador, right? But there's no direct reference in the word whether it's a heavenly or earthly messenger or ambassador. It just means messenger or ambassador. And so it could be either one. It could be all three. I don't know, okay? Um, but the point is, is that there were some messengers that would bring the words of Jesus and the visions that John saw to the churches. 
But the idea here is that Jesus is holding those messengers to the church in his right hand. He's in complete control. He's in complete control of, of, of his word and its, its, its direction to the church. He's in complete control of the church. He's among the lampstands. He's ministering to us. He's there. He's tending them. Um, what that tells me as a pastor, I'm very, very, very encouraged by this. It's his church, not mine. I ain't got to worry about it. Now, I don't mean that in a dismissive, I don't care kind of way. You know, but when things come up and we're like, oh, no. We don't have funds to do this or, or this or there's this problem or whatever. It's not on my shoulders. I get to go to Jesus Almighty and go, hey, it's your church, dude. We need help. And he is faithful. But that applies in our lives individually too. This is too much for me to carry. Nobody is meant to live this life in isolation. Nobody is meant to be in church alone. We're called to be together and to support one another, but ultimately it's his. He's in control. He's in control of all of it, and so I'm I'm good. And so if there's situations where money is tight, he knows. We're good. Situations where we need something, we pray. He knows. Sometimes God says, hey, mention a need to the body, and we do that. Other challenges, needs, ministries, stuff, he knows. He's in control, and I'm just so comforted by that. So verse 16, it also said a dark double-edged sword came from the mouth of God. This is symbolic of the word of God. Obviously, in Hebrews 4.12, it says the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so this is a symbolic picture of the words of God coming out of the mouth of God, right? It's God's word that defines and determines and penetrates and comforts and encourages and condemns and judges. It's God's word that does all of that. But what's interesting is it says a sharp double-edged sword, right? That word sharp in the Greek is oxus. And this word oxus has two meanings. The first meaning is referring to a sour wine or vinegar that was used in an anesthetic to relieve pain. Interesting, right? The same exact word is used of the vinegar that was given to Jesus on the cross that they offered to him to alleviate the pain that he was going through. In daily life, this solution that was oxus in the Greek was used to cleanse disease and infection and to clean dirty wounds and even to alleviate pain of a medical procedure. It was very bitter to the taste, but after attacking the disease itself externally or after it was ingested, it produced a a healing effect. (laughs) Sharp two-edged sword produces a healing effect. The other definition of oxus is sharp, as in what we understand sharp to be a keen edge that can cut, okay? Um, But the idea is that that this sword is double-edged. God's word cuts both ways. Right, in Revelation, we see Jesus in his mercy and compassion act to attack spiritual disease and cleanse it from the church in chapters two and three. That's where he's like, hey, you guys are doing this great. This is what I have against you. Not to condemn them, but to cleanse, to root out spiritual corruption, right? And correction cuts, right? Sometimes when Jesus is doing discipline and correction in our lives, it hurts. It could be a painful procedure. It can be bitter to the taste, but when we ingest the word, when we apply it, the healing comes. 
even in the midst of the difficult discipline that we might be under, the word can bring comfort, like an anesthetic, like a pain reliever in the moment. But then also his word, his truth, when it's rejected, it's still true. And it'll bring judgment, because he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And none come to the Father but through him. That's what his word says. So then verse 16, it says, his face was shining like the sun at full strength. You know, the last time John saw anything even close to this was at the transfiguration. But this whole vision, this was something John never saw before. Like, like the whole book, right, is, is symbolic representation of stuff, but, but the glory just shining from his face was like the sun at full strength. You ever tried to look at the sun? Some of us did as kids. We permanently have spots in our eyes now, right? Like, don't do that. It, 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 it's too much. And remember, John saw Jesus in Galilee. He saw the carpenter from Nazareth, and yes, he saw Jesus transfigured and standing there with Moses and Elijah. And yes, he saw the resurrected Jesus ascend to heaven, but he'd never seen a Jesus like this. This is the Jesus of divine power, of divine authority, of divine judgment. And again, he's portrayed this way because what he goes on to give us in the Revelation in chapters two and three is Jesus brings judgment in the form of discipline and correction upon his church. And then in chapters four on, he brings judgment in the form of condemnation on those who reject him upon the whole earth. So John, in the presence of Jesus, heard his voice, saw his glory, and then we'll close on this, what he does. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. You know, here's the guy who laid his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper, right? The one that was so close to Jesus, he was like, oh, I'm the, I'm the disciple Jesus loved, right? Such an intimate, um, um, precious connection. But Jesus falling at his feet like a dead man, it's not just like scared up, ah, you know, it's, it's a picture of, of reverent worship. It's a, it's a humble awe at the presence of the Almighty. It's a humble reverence in the presence of his holiness, and we see this response over and over from those when they find themselves in the presence of Jesus, right? And Isaiah caught up to God's throne room, and woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Peter, after Jesus filled the nets, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Paul on the road to Damascus, it says it fell off his horse. Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do? I believe that we're given this revelation of Jesus Christ um, because there's times in our lives, and maybe you're having a time like that today where, where you need a fresh perspective of Jesus Christ high and lifted up. You need a picture of him in charge of his church, in control of all things. You need a picture of Jesus, God Almighty, who knows and who is working on your behalf. Some say that the modern church has a dangerous lack of reverence and awe of Jesus Christ. We don't need more self-esteem than the world today. We don't need more positive self-image, more standing on our own two feet. I think we need more Christ esteem. I think we need to lower ourselves and to get down on our faces before his feet. To follow this example of reverent, humble, awe-inspired worship of God. 
to be people who aren't bowing out of fear, like in the sense of worry that Jesus is dangerous or will hurt us in some way, but that we respond in that reverence, that recognition that he is God, holy, divine, glorious, powerful, and in charge of life itself. Because some of us, I think, are playing lightly with Jesus. No, he's just my buddy. Well, if you diminish who he is in your life, it makes it easier to not listen to him. And I think that may be some of the problem in some of our lives in the world today where we don't want to do what he says and obey him because after all, he's just this humble dude that's my friend and we forget to see him as God Almighty, King of kings, ruler of all things. In fact, Jesus is the one who decides who lives and dies because in verse 18, it says, I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. What does it mean he holds the keys of death and Hades? Well, Jesus is the one who decides who lives and dies. And how does he decide? Do you know him? Is he your Lord and Savior? Do you know him personally? That's the key. If you know him personally, if he is your Lord and Savior, if you are saved, you have the hope of heaven. When you pass from this life, you will go into eternal life with him in paradise. If you don't know him and you die in this life, you will go into everlasting judgment a place of pain and suffering forever. And so if you do know the Lord today, praise God. But today the encouragement is to hear the Lord, see the Lord, worship the Lord, and obey the Lord. Do what he's calling you to do. But if you don't know him, you could get right with him today before his judgment falls on this world. And so verse 19, we'll close on this. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. We dealt with this in in more detail last time, but I am so glad that John chose to obey the call of God, right? Some of us, we might hear, we might see, we might even worship, and we forget the obey part. And so we'll come to church next week, and we'll hear, and we'll see, and we'll worship a little bit, and then we'll leave, and we'll forget the obey part again. And we keep coming back week after week, and we're like, God, it's not working. God, what's happening? He's like, you're forgetting about the obedience. Do what I'm calling you to do. Live how I'm calling you to live. Be who I'm calling you to be. And when you say, I can't do it, he's like, come on, I'm among you. I'm your high priest. I'm your king. I'm here. I'm filling you. Just trust me. Stay close to me. Stay in my presence. Keep experiencing who I am. Cling to me. And watch what I will do in your life. Because God does the impossible with every single person that comes to him. Jesus is indeed our savior, but he is also God Almighty, holy and worthy of praise. And the position of the church should always be in worship at his feet, always in his presence, and quick to obey. Yes, Jesus is our friend, and we can't forget that. He is the lover of our souls. Yes, we can't forget that. He is kind and long-suffering. Yes, we can't forget that, but he is also our high priest. Jesus is our shepherd. He is also our king. And if you want to know the power of God in your life, bow down at the feet of Jesus. If you want to know the love of God in your life, bow down at the feet of Jesus. Bow down in reverence. Bow down in awe in his presence every day. 
and practice and keep and get better at hearing him, seeing him, and obeying him and worshiping him. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to, to look at this picture of you that you gave John, Lord, this revelation of your glory and your divine power. Lord, it is something that should, that should in a sense, <laughs> scare us, Lord. Because, Lord, the holiness and the perfection of you just shines such a penetrating light in the imperfection of who we are that, God, we just can't help but to fall on our faces. But, Lord, it isn't to be in a place of fear of condemnation because God is your children. You're our Father. And you discipline us as a Father when we need that discipline. And that discipline is always born out of love. It is always born out of a desire for what's best for us. And so for those of us here, Lord, that, that, that call you our God and our Father, our Savior, our friend even, Lord, help us to always be in a posture of reverence and awe before you. To not get so cavalier in our relationship with you that we forget that you are God Almighty. That your eyes penetrate to the very intentions of our heart and that we would take seriously the fact that you know to stop playing games but to say, look, God, I submit to you. To be in the spirit and under the control of God Almighty so that, God, we would do what it is that glorifies your name. But not out of a fear that you're gonna smash us if we don't, but out of a recognition of how greatly you love us out of a recognition that you saved us, out of a response of gratitude because you are our God. And there's anybody in this room that doesn't know Jesus this morning, he has spoken to you, whether you're here in the room or online, I just wanna pray with you for a moment. You know, accepting Jesus is simply a moment of saying, God, I believe you're God, I believe you did what you did, and I believe you could save me, so please do so. So if you want to receive Jesus this morning, I just want to lead you in this quick prayer and you can just pray it where you're seated and at home online. Say, Jesus, I believe you are God. You have revealed yourself to me. I'm in your presence. And I know that I'm a sinful person. God, I know judgment is coming. But right now I ask, that in your great love and mercy that you would forgive me of my sin, that you would save my soul, that you would adopt me into your family and make me one of your own. I believe your word, Lord. I believe what you say. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to live for you every day of my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, and for the rest of us, I just pray that God would bless your life. Good or bad, the presence of Jesus is healing and encouraging and motivating. It's a wonderful thing. And I think the devil is so good at making us so busy with stuff that sometimes he has to break our feet so we'll sit down and just worship him for a while. And uh, when God does that, I'd say don't get frustrated at the, 
at the difficult time, the difficult circumstance, but say, God, I'm here. Show yourself to me. Let me see you. Let me experience you. And God will do a wonderful work in your lives. In that process, you know, if you're suffering and you're uh, under persecution like the early church was that John was writing to, take that fresh perspective of who Jesus is. He is your God. He is God Almighty. There is nothing he can't deal with, nothing he can't address. Why not go to him? Why not take the burdens to him and let him do what he does best? He just is God all over all of it. And then to go out and to share that and to tell people about what God has done in your life because he's calling us to be a light on a hill. If there's sin in your life that you're not dealing with, deal with it. Take it before God. Root that out. Before God comes to you and has to do it because I think it'll be a little bit less... uh, less fun when that happens. But the point is, is that we have a God who loves us so much that he does take sin seriously. Let's be his people that take that seriously, that root it out, that don't play games with that, that live lives to glorify him, to proclaim the glory of, yes, the humanity of Jesus and what he came to do in his death on the cross and his resurrection, but that he is also God and ruler and king of kings and he is the one that my entire life is submitted to. So when you do that, I believe you'll be ultimately blessed. God bless you guys.